All right, we're in Ruth chapter 3. <clears throat> Tonight we're Ruth 2 last week, Ruth 1 the week before, and we're going to close things out uh, with the last chapter of Ruth, Ruth 4 next week. So uh, let me give you a little background before uh, we get rolling. Uh, the book of Ruth is about Ruth, but you need to know what Ruth's family tree looks like for the story really to make any sense. Uh, you have a, a mom and a dad, let's just call them. You've got Naomi's the mom and Elimelech is the dad. Naomi and Elimelech have two sons. Uh, if, you know, if, you can, uh, if you know their names, you can spell them without looking in Ruth chapter 1. It would be awesome. But their names are Malon and Chilion. Malon and Chilion have uh, each marry. Uh, they marry uh, Moabite women. Okay? One marries Orpah. The other marries Ruth. They're in Moab, all of these six adults, because uh, there's a, there is a famine uh, back home in Israel. Uh, they've fled to Moab because there's not a famine there, and they can eat and have their fill. Uh, when they leave, it's not just a good plan. It's actually a, an act of rebellion on their part. Uh, God had told them if, if Israel ever experienced a famine, uh, it wasn't just bad weather patterns, unfortunate weather patterns. Uh, the famine existed as judgment for their sins, and they had a prescription for it. So if there's a famine, it's a sign that you need to repent. It's a sign that you need to repent of what's going on in your nation uh, that the famine might lift. So Limelech, like all of us, sidesteps repentance and finds a better way uh, to, to, to sidestep the suffering that he's in. So he goes to Moab. And his sons marry Moabite women. Uh, it gets more unfortunate because Elimelech dies, leaving uh, a widow, Naomi. Then both the boys die. Malon and Chilion die. So here we have three widows. Uh, Naomi hears that uh, the, the famine has ceased back home in Israel, so she wants to go home, and she tells the two women, the Moabite women, stay home. You don't have a chance of getting married if you come with me to Israel. And I don't have a chance. I'm too old to have another son that you might marry. If so, there's going to be a 20-something-year age difference. You need to stay here, find men your own age from your own country. Orpah weeps and weeps and weeps and says, no, 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 I, I can't do that. And she says, you must. And Orpah says, fine, I'll stay. Ruth, on the other hand, commits to Naomi. Ruth says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. So here she goes on this long trek from Moab back to Israel. And when she gets to Israel, uh, she begins to provide for Naomi. That's what we read in chapter 2. Uh, and today we see, all right, now Ruth is providing for herself and for Naomi. Uh, but what's all this, uh, what's going to happen with this Boaz character, this guy who owns the field in which she is getting uh, her grain. Uh, and that's what we'll be looking at tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, uh, we need your help. Uh, Lord, I, I have, uh, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. I love these people, but we're all, we all have our problems. <laughs> uh, we've, we all really don't want to know the truth. We want to do things our own way. That is the nature of sin. And so, Lord, you rescue us. Uh, from our plight, uh, Lord, that we might not be independent, uh, but that we might see ourselves as little children who need a father to take care of us. Oh, Lord, be that kind of authority in our life tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, recently, uh, I was made aware of a problem I didn't know much about. Uh, it was a problem of payday loans. I'll tell you about payday loans here in just a second. But I want first to imagine this very personally. I want you to imagine a woman. Uh, this woman is, uh, she's the object of domestic violence. Uh, her husband is out of the picture. Uh, 
Uh, she has two toddlers, two little girls she's got to take care of. Uh, her ex-husband's not paying child support. Uh, this woman has student loans, and she's got uh, some other, other kinds of uh, loans that are being garnished from her wages. So she's got this full-time job. She's got a part-time job, just trying to make ends meet because she's having all this money. Gar garnish means that these creditors uh, are able to get into your bank account and automatically take payments out. Uh, that's what having your wages garnished means. So uh, she doesn't have a lot of money in the first place. She's providing for three people all by herself. She's got to pay for daycare. It's, it's unbelievable how hard her life is. And she's living literally paycheck to paycheck. Well, then something happens. Her transmission goes out. What's she going to do? Her family all lives out of town. She's not going to contact her ex-husband. She's so busy, she doesn't have a chance to build a social network in which to be a safety net for her. So what does she do? She just needs 300 bucks to pay the difference. She goes to a payday loan. Now, you might say, gosh, I've seen these places, you know, cash advance. There's 15 of them inside New Circle Road. Let me just be frank with you. 15. That's more than there are McDonald's inside New Circle Road. 15 of these payday loan places. Let me just break it down what a payday loan is. Uh, a home loan right now is somewhere between 4 and 5% interest. That means you take 100 bucks out, you pay $4, 4 to $5 a year in interest. Not a lot of interest. Credit card is 16%. That means you take $100, if you owe $100 your credit card, you're going to pay $16 in interest per year. These payday loans, these small dollar amount loans, these places are, these 15 are set up inside New Circle Road. They can charge 36% interest. And that doesn't include fees. Once you throw the fees in there, it's somewhere between 400 and 700%. Now, who's taking out these loans? It's the poor. Now, I don't know. Maybe you've taken one of these out. Maybe you found yourself in a place where you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. Maybe there are certain elements of this woman's story that connect with your story. And it's left you in a financial uh, hard spot, a rock and a hard place. How do you get out? Maybe you've known somebody like that. Maybe this is you right now. There are significant obstacles when it comes to this thing that we call poverty. And this is just one way to look at it. But one of the reasons that there's 15 payday loans inside New Circle Road is because one in seven Americans, they live in poverty. And when you live in poverty, and you can get $300 regardless, almost regardless of your credit score, it's really appealing. So appealing that they're this popular. And I think this is why uh, poor people love Jesus. I think this is why poor people love Jesus. Because Jesus uh, requires, even more so, he demands poverty in order for us to follow him. In order for us to be in his kingdom. And it makes sense if you stop and think about it. Because the more money you have, the more support you have, the more comfort you have, the more talent that you have, the less likely you are to see your need for Jesus. So when Jesus says, lose everything and you get to gain me, the poor say, I'll take that offer all day because I don't have anything anyways. And that's when the magic happens. Jesus starts to overcome obstacles that you never thought were overcomable. But as long as you're sure that your money, that your position, that your status, your influence, your skill, your talent can get you where you need to go, Jesus will stay in the background of your life. He will be a relative non-factor. 
See, those who need Jesus get to experience magic, while the self-sufficients just go on managing their life. So what would you rather your life be characterized by? The magic of Jesus or the management of you? In Ruth chapter 3, we see magic. As Jesus comes through, they put their faith in him and obstacles are overcome. So let's read it. It's in your bulletin. Uh, Page 7, we'll read the whole thing. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. I bet he will. Verse 5, and she replied, all that you say I will do. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said it to be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how do you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The word of the Lord. All right, we're going to look at two things. Uh, The first, uh, we're going to look at Ruth first, and we see the uh, faith that overcomes the fear of rejection. And then we're going to look at Boaz, and we'll see the faith that overcomes the fear of loss. Faith overcomes the fear of rejection. Faith that overcomes the fear of loss. So Ruth first. When you start seeing Ruth here, uh, you see it as Naomi's talking to her. Naomi's giving her a plan. The plan starts in verse 3, and she starts laying it out. Part of the plan is she's going to wash. She's going to take a good shower. She's going to put on her cloak. She's going to go down to the threshing floor where Boaz is. And after he's done eating and drinking and lays down for sleep, she's supposed to lay at his feet and uncover them. See, you start feeling some of the sexual tension just there, don't you? There's some connotations that are really obvious. She's going <laughs> to take a shower. Uh, she's going to wear perfume, and she's going to wear her nicest piece of clothing. 
But some of the steps uh, where the sexual tension lies are much less obvious. And it's because of the cultural distance between the ancient Hebrews and us. So let me just do a few of them. Feet. Lay down at his feet. Uh, feet uh, can be a euphemism for the male sexual organ in Hebrew culture. Then we have three verbs that have sexual undertones. Uncover, lying down, and know. You know the word know, Genesis chapter 2. A man shall know his wife. It's not talking about relationship. It's talking physically. So we've got the feet. We've got these verbs. And lastly, we've got the threshing floor. The threshing floor was normally a place where seedy sexual activity took place, especially in the time of the judges, because the time of the judges, things were super immoral. And that's when Ruth happens. I spoke last week about the, the, the process of harvesting the barley. Uh, first, you've got these big stalks of barley with the heads of, uh, you've got these big stalks of barley and the head is on the top. The men would go through, cut down the stalks. The women would go through and cut off the heads of barley and then they would put them in their sacks and they would go forward. The third round of people, you had the men, then the women, then you'd have uh, the poor, the widow, and the immigrant come behind them and they would glean whatever fell out. Whatever heads of barley fell out on the ground, that, that just fell off because the, when the stock got cut off or fell off uh, with the women, fell out of their sack or whatever, the poor got to go through, the widows got to go through, and the immigrants got to go through, and that was the way in which that they provided for themselves. They gleaned. But after these heads of barley, after they would dry out, it would be made up of two parts. There were the husks and there were the kernels. The husks were real light, and the kernel was inside that husk, so they would, uh, they would throw up these uh, heads of barley into the air, and the husk would just fly right off of the wind, and the kernels would fall down onto the floor. So you've got this huge process that farmers would go through, and the har- they would grow it, they would harvest it, it would dry out, then they would thresh it, and then you know what time it was? It was about ready to time. It was about time to get paid. All this hard work was going to pay off, and they're about ready to cash in. And you know what happens. This was a, a this uh, threshing business was a job done by. Males, so of course, at the end of a long day of work, they would eat and they would drink to celebrate what was about ready to come, the payday. And whenever you have men and you've got money and you've got food and you've got drink, especially in the time of the judges, you had illicit sexual activity in the form of prostitution. And so now you see the audacious plan of Naomi, don't you? To an outside observer, there's no difference between what she's asking Ruth to do and what a prostitute does. What if something were to go wrong? What if someone saw Ruth sneaking around the threshing floor? What if she were to lay down next to the wrong guy because she couldn't see well? And most importantly, what if Boaz takes advantage of Ruth or that he rejects her? There seems to be a lot of problems, but if you look closely at Naomi's plan, you see just how brilliant it is. She doesn't tell Ruth to go in the dark. She tells Ruth to go at dusk. Because if she goes at dusk, she can scout out the situation. She can get behind a bush somewhere far, far enough, close enough that she can see what's going on, but far enough away where it's hard to be seen. And she can appraise the situation. She can see which man is Boaz and lay down next to the right person. Then she says, wait till everybody falls asleep. Well, this also keeps her from being seen. And then she says, wait until Boaz has drank a few. This minimizes her chance of being rejected. And most importantly, what Naomi is counting on is what she already knows about Boaz. She knows a lot about Boaz. She knows that Boaz is a man of character. 
And if he's a man of character, he's not going to abuse Ruth. This isn't a random guy. This is a guy whose character is known. But even though Naomi is reducing all these, she's minimizing these risks, there's still a lot of faith that it's going to take for this to happen. There's a lot of room for the plan to go awry. You still have the obstacles of rejection and abuse and being seen and choosing the wrong man to lay next to. They're still there. Yet Ruth still follows through on Naomi's plan. Not only does she follow through on Naomi's plan, she takes it a step farther. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, Ruth does something that she's not told to do. Ruth, Ruth uh, tells, not asks. She tells Boaz, put the corner of your garment over me. Now again, this is a Hebrew cultural thing that doesn't make any sense to us. But a man putting his garment over a woman, he's saying, I'm going to take care of you. Effectively, she's saying, Boaz, put a ring on it. I want to marry you. Naomi's plan was just to put, uh, Naomi's plan was just to put Ruth in a position where Boaz might do that. But Ruth's guts propel her to not ask, but command Boaz to marry him. Shocking, isn't it? There's a lot of space between what seems plausible and what is hoped for. See, it seems highly implausible that a wealthy Israelite would ever marry a poor, widowed immigrant. Yet that's the hope of Naomi and Ruth. But how does this thing come to pass? Well, it comes to pass through Naomi, through Ruth, and through Boaz, normal hopes, their normal intentions, and their normal actions. Because this is the way that God often affects his purposes in the world. Things like plans and perfume. These are the means that God uses to bring Naomi and Ruth from emptiness and bitterness to fullness and joy. There's no passivity in any of these three characters. None whatsoever. But what about you? Do you feel stuck in your emptiness and bitterness? Have you given up hope that things can actually be different? I think what this story teaches us is that the resurrection often comes through our courage to be daring. Even as Presbyterians, we don't have to be frozen by God's sovereignty and say God's going to work this thing out. Naomi didn't do that. She constructed a plan. Ruth didn't do that. She demanded Boaz marry her. Boaz didn't do that and just wish her well. He actually took action to redeem these women. So maybe the best thing for you and for me to do tonight is to step out in faith. Just take a stab at something. You've been asking God to change your career. Why don't you make a plan for a new career path and go for it? Why don't you ask somebody on a date? Why don't you apply for a promotion? Why don't you sign up for a small group? Why don't you do something about the plight of the poor in our city? Maybe even shut down these payday loans. See, oftentimes, our inaction is not a sign of our conviction in the sovereignty of God. It's just the opposite. We actually don't think he's going to do anything. Thus, we remain frozen in our disobedience. This is the faith of Ruth that overcome the obstacle of rejection. Let's look at the faith of Boaz. Boaz's fears are really different than Ruth's. He doesn't fear rejection because he's pretty sure that Ruth's into him. He doesn't fear abuse because he's in a position of power being the wealthy Israelite male. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have anything to lose. He's got a lot to lose. He has his reputation to lose. 
and even more so, he could lose Ruth. Now, I know it looks like Ruth's into him, and it looks like Boaz is into Ruth, because look at verse 10. In verse 10, he blesses her. And in verse 10, when he blesses her, he's, not, he's acknowledging his affection. He's acknowledging her affection for him. And he returns his affection, not by making a sexual advance, but by acknowledging her character. Do you see verse 11? Verse 11, uh, verse 11 he calls her a worthy woman. Not only is he called a worthy woman, he said he's been hearing things from the fellow townsmen that Ruth is a worthy woman. He's taken Ruth that there's so much more to Ruth than her physical appearance. She's a worthy woman. The only time this phrase is ever used in the Old Testament except here is in Proverbs chapter 31. But how do he and how do these fellow townsmen know that she's a worthy woman? Well, think about it. She got up early to go work in Boaz's fields. She got home late. She came a long way with Naomi, who she didn't have to commit to, from Moab. These townsmen, and maybe even Boaz here, they've seen a difference in Naomi. And they're attributing the difference in Naomi to Ruth's influence in her life. Chapter 1, she's pouting, and chapter 3, she's plotting. Somehow, from 1 to 3, she gains some hope. Verse 10, uh, you see uh, what Ruth has done. She uh, hasn't given herself to any of these men, whether poor or rich. And most women in this position would have given themselves to men, poor or rich, uh, not because there's anything inherently wrong with them, but just because they're desperate to be provided for. They sell their ticket out of poverty, not Ruth. See, bottom line, Boaz is seduced by her character. And when Boaz is seduced by her character, rather than just her sexuality... He's showing that he's also a person of high character. He notices things about Ruth that many warm-blooded male sinners would overlook. Look at verse 12. Here's how you know he's, not not just because he's got, not not just because he notices Ruth's character, but look what he's like in verse 12. Verse 12, uh, he says that there's another redeemer who's nearer to Naomi and Ruth than he is. Meaning that he doesn't have first rights. He doesn't have first dibs. He's down, the, he's down the totem pole. He's in second place. So the only way that he can have Ruth, the only way that he, can, that he can take care of Naomi is if this person passes on the opportunity. Leviticus chapter 25 says very clearly it has to be the relative closest to the one who's been widowed who has first rights to redemption. So this marriage to Ruth might not work out. But Boaz isn't going to let his love for Ruth run over the rules. See, the rules at first glance, they seem like an obstacle for Boaz. On the face of them, they seem like a threat for him having Ruth. And it forces the question, how how do you follow the rules when they seem like whispers and your desires seem like shouts? The answer is question your ears. See, your ears should be tuned differently. You should be developing taste buds for godliness and not worldliness. See, put yourself in Boaz's shoes. He's worked all day. He's tired. He's eaten. And he's probably drank a good bit. And now he's laying underneath the stars. And someone very attractive lays down next to him. What's he going to do? 
what would you do? He doesn't have the opportunity uh, to go to his Bible and figure out what he's supposed to do. He doesn't have the opportunity uh, to call his mentor, to call a close Christian friend and ask him what he's going to do. Rather, he's got to work out of his character. His character now is going to ooze out of him. So do you take account of whether you've been captured by the gospel? Do you equate temptations as opportunities? It's in these situations that we've got to lean on our God-wrought character. See, if you're single and you desire a spouse, the best thing you can do is develop your character in the gospel. It's your best bargaining chip with other potential spouses. And you know you found someone of character when they choose obedience to Jesus over you. See, that's what Boaz did. So do you see the space here? There's space between him having Ruth because they're really into each other and not having Ruth because of this near redeemer. See, you've got this space too, don't you? And when we have this space, we, we call it uncertainty. We call it ambiguity. We call it anxiety. But it's in these spots that we feel forgotten. We feel alone. But again, put yourself on Boaz's shoes. So he's laying there at the threshing floor. He's worked all day. This woman's laying next to him. He's responded by blessing her. But he says, hey, I've got to talk to this other redeemer. Can you imagine? Because he tells Ruth there, he says, I want you to lie down. In other words, just, would you sleep? Good, good night's rest because i got to go take care of something. So she lays there and she's resting. Hopefully she falls asleep. Meanwhile, Boaz walks from the threshing floor to the, the other redeemer's house. Can you imagine the anxiety between those two places? See, God is a professional at creating these spaces in our lives. He did it to Ruth, he did it to Naomi, he did it to Boaz, and Jesus did it everywhere. Let me just give you a few. Uh, John chapter 6. He's got 5,000 people in front of him. He goes to the disciples, and he's about ready to create a huge space for them. He says, hey, we're, we're going to feed these 5,000 people. They're hungry. And, then, and sends them out. He says, collect all the food you can. They come back, they've got five loaves of bread and two fish. Big space. Big space between feeding maybe four people and feeding 5,000. And Jesus is more than able to come up with the difference, isn't he? All right, then you've got John chapter 11. John chapter 11, you've got the story of Lazarus raising again from the dead. Lazarus gets sick. Jesus hears about it. And he's sick unto death. And Jesus stays right where he's at. And in the meantime, Lazarus dies. Two days. Space. John chapter 9. Jesus comes up on a blind guy. Uh, the disciples try to heal this blind guy, and they're unable to while Jesus stands here and waits and watches the whole thing. And then he finally heals him. Space. See, this space, this is where faith steps in. And you might say, I, I don't have much faith, or I want to grow in my faith. And when we say that, we usually mean that we're going to combine the spiritual dis disciplines and reflecting on God's love, and then we hope our faith grows. But friends, as someone who loves you, let me tell you, that's not going to take you very far. In fact, if that's your approach, it's probably going to leave you spiritually moody. Because what you're going to be always doing is taking your spiritual pulse, wondering how you're doing, 
You're going to be taking your spiritual pulse and you'll be trying to uncover the endless hunt for idols that are keeping you from loving God. But what these exercises do is they just lead to a concentration on yourself that Jesus didn't know anything about. See, Jesus was led by his love for others in the world. He forgot about his needs and the needs of others. He sacrificed himself one and for all on the altar of sympathy. See, Jesus wasn't shooting for new planes of spiritual knowledge. He wasn't shooting for new levels of spiritual maturity. He wasn't looking for a new spiritual experience. He was shooting for you. He loved you. And he disappeared to the extent that almost all of his closest friends abandoned him because he loved you and he loved them. He was motivated by love to meet your need. And to meet your need and meet my need, he became a substitutionary atonement. He took upon our sins, absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf as sinners. And then he rose again to new life. And he's been bringing renewal to all things ever since. See, there was a lot of space for Jesus. Jesus died. Not only did he die, but he died with the sins of the world on his shoulders. And how can a man who died that kind of death and absorbed the wrath of God, how could he ever be come alive again? But that's what he did. That's what God does, is that he fills these spaces with himself. I love it. John 17, uh, Jesus prays. Uh, the whole chapter is his prayer, but uh, verse 12, he says, while I was, he's talking to his father, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. None has been lost. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. None has been lost. When I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe. None has been lost. When I was with them, I protected them, kept them safe. None has been lost. So you know what that means. It means that fear has no place in your life. It means there really aren't obstacles because the biggest obstacle that there was has been overcome. And now, because you're safe, because you're protected, because you've not been lost, you can step out in faith and obey God. You can obey Him in all areas of your life. You can obey Him by, by, by giving away more of your money and not keeping it for yourself because He's going to meet your needs. You can step out in faith and make a hard decision about dating because you know that God's ways are better than yours. You can step out in faith and share your faith with your neighbor and know that even if they reject them, that God has you. See, when you know that Jesus has lost none that's been given to him, including you, it empowers you to take big risks. Ruth took a huge risk because Boaz could have taken advantage of her or could have rejected her. Boaz uh, could have lost Ruth to this near redeemer. And neither Ruth nor Boaz did their cynicism win the day. Their faith did. And they experienced magic. And so when you're loved, no matter what, you know that you can step out and take these big, incredible risks. So what risk do you need to take tonight? Let's pray. Uh, 
Lord, you command us to not only be hearers of your word, but to be doers also. Oh, Lord, would you make uh, individual applications for us. And Lord, we, uh, we trust you and follow through. In Jesus' name, amen.